we rejoice in the good news announced to us in that hymn, that though I was lost, I have been found, not in any goodness of my own, but by God's amazing grace. Please open with me your Bible to the very end of the Gospel of John. If you're looking for our passage in the Bible that's there in the pew rack, you can find this on page 1076. We conclude the Gospel of John this morning. We've been looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus in the weeks surrounding Easter to see the impact the resurrection has on our lives. We've been with the disciples as they first encountered Jesus, receiving his peace, Thomas then responding, calling out, my Lord and my God. We traveled in John 21 to the Sea of Galilee, where miraculously a a large catch of fish was brought in and the disciples had breakfast with Jesus. And then Peter becomes the focus of Jesus' attention. And in a threefold repetition of the question, do you love me? He restores Peter to gospel ministry. But it comes with the warning that in his old age, Peter would be led to his death. And so Peter naturally wonders, well, if this is going to cost me my life, what will it cost them? And so let's listen to the very end of the Gospel of John. This is John 21. I'll read verses 20 through 25. John 21, 20. Peter turned and saw When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for these gospel truths, these truths of Scripture, we would find our hope. That those of us who follow after Jesus as his disciples would be assured of his greatness and glory. Lord, we pray for those that listen to the reading and now the preaching of your word without faith, that you would even now give them the faith to believe, that they would see the truth and receive the grace that is poured out on us. Father, on this Mother's Day, we rejoice in the, the blessings we have received from our own mothers and grandmothers. For those of us that have had the joy and privilege of hearing the gospel proclaimed to us from our our earliest ages. Lord, we thank you for the way that mothers have pointed us to your love. Father in heaven, we pray this morning for birth mothers who in bravery made plans for adoption for their children. Lord, we pray for adoptive mothers who have opened their hearts to to loving a child as their own forever into their families. Father, yet even as we pray, we pray for those that, that need strength and help. Lord, we pray for 
for those that are hopeful to be mothers, that you would comfort and encourage them. For single mothers who provide care to the, the, their own children. For stepmothers who have opened their homes and extended the, the welcome of your love into a wider family. And yet, Lord, today we, we come alongside those that grieve. Mothers that grieve the loss of a child. And for those of us that grieve the loss of our mothers. Lord, we pray for, for those that in our midst serve as our spiritual guides, as spiritual mothers. We pray that we would receive encouragement and instruction from them and that you, Lord, would encourage them in their gift of ministry that they have in your church. Father, we rejoice in the blessing that we have here. Amen. It just wasn't fair. My fifth grade teacher did not treat me fairly. As soon as she announced her plan, I revolted. I admit, I was already annoyed when my classmates were given opportunity to take a test that I had already aced. I mean, school tests were designed for kids like me. A school test let me measure my greatness against my peers. So I pretended to understand the allowance for kids to be allowed to retake a test that I had already scored well on. They needed to bring up their grades. But what really got me, what provoked me, what what caused me to doubt all fairness and goodness in the universe there in my classroom at Haynes Elementary was the prize given to kids who retook the test. It will slot in it. You could use it to, to gather all your coins at home. And each kid who raised his or her grade high enough on the retake test got a Tootsie Roll tube from the school principal. But not those of us who did well enough on the test the first time to not have to take a retest. I mean, how is that fair? Every ounce of my fifth grade self reviled against this injustice. Now, in defense of excellent educators, including Mrs. Rosner, my fifth grade teacher, I know she was working hard to motivate my classmates. I didn't need the motivation. My own arrogance was a sufficient motivator I was about to say for me as a fifth grader, but some of you know me too well. And I suspect the principal who shared the prizes with us, with the class, didn't realize that the prize wasn't being given to to everybody, that it wasn't available. At 10 years old, I knew it was wrong. What about me? How fair is it for me to be treated this way when she gets a prize? Now, maybe for you it wasn't a Tootsie Roll piggy bank which provoked your sense of justice. But you've you've felt this idea of unfairness, maybe even in bigger ways, much more important ways than a cardboard tube filled with candy that tastes like wax. But you've reviled the kindness shown to another. You've wondered... Well, if that's how I'm going to be treated, then what about him? Jesus told Peter that he would lead God's people, but that in the end, Peter would die the death of a martyr. What terrible tragedy will befall him? If following you, Jesus, will cost me my life, what will it cost him? See, we can understand Peter's 
question. We can sympathize with him. Yes, Peter received a gracious welcome from Jesus, an encouragement that that he would be used by God in ministry in the church. But Peter also received that dire warning. He will lose his life for the sake of the gospel. And so it only seems natural to wonder, Lord, what about him? I mean, maybe it will even help Peter understand his own calling. What does it really cost to follow Jesus if he knows, Lord, what about him? But see, this is not the first time we have seen Peter's problem of comparison in this gospel. Remember last week as we looked at verse 15 of John 21, of John, do you truly love me more than these disciples love me? And we saw that, that earlier in the gospel, G, uh, Peter would have said, of course I love you more than they do. I jumped out of the boat. I walked on water. I'm willing to die for you. I pulled my sword. Of course I love them more. I love you more than they love you. Now, thankfully, in wisdom, Peter in verse 15 doesn't give the same answer that he gave back in chapter 13. Here he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And yet, immediately after being being welcomed back by the love of Jesus and commissioned as a shepherd of God's people, when Jesus warns him that he was going to die as a martyr, Peter can't help but again ask the question of comparison. Lord, what about him? Jesus' care for his disciples. I want you to see his love in and even asking Peter that hard question. When Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. The only thing here that should matter to Peter is following Jesus. Peter has been restored into fellowship with God, not merely as a, as a a recipient of God's grace, but now as a proclaimer of God's grace. He's going to be sent as a missionary, as a preacher, as a shepherd of the sheep of God. And Jesus has proved his love for Peter in that Jesus gave his life for Peter. Peter, who who wouldn't even be identified with Jesus. Aren't you with Jesus? No, 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 that's not me. Three times, even after having been warned by Jesus, he denies even knowing the ministry of Peter and the ministry of John are both important. Jesus is not dismissing one as better or worse than the other. He's basically telling Peter, don't worry about what I've called John to do. Worry about what I'm asking you to do. Focus on the calling, the grace that is yours. Because Peter's ministry is one in which he will be a leader in the church, the one who will stand up in, in, the, in the coming days, proclaim the gospel, the one who will willingly be arrested and threatened and will still say, no, you can tell me what to do, but you are not the Lord of my conscience. I will obey God rather than obey you. I have to preach this gospel. We know that, that Peter will have a long ministry because Jesus tells him that, that it will, won't be until he's an old man that he's bound in chains to be led away to his death. And so a long ministry of gospel proclamation that is crowned with the joy and the privilege of being a martyr is an important ministry. Because when Jesus uses the conditional statement, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And people took that as a promise that, 
well, John is going to remain alive until the return of Jesus. But John says, that's not true. I'm not sitting around here expecting that, that Jesus will be back before I die. That's not what the promise is. That was, that was just a, a question to turn Peter away from, from me back to Jesus. Because John will be given a ministry in which, yes, he will live a long life. He's probably younger than Peter. We get a sense of that in their foot race to the empty tomb to the garden tomb, that, that he arrives first at the tomb but doesn't enter. And it's not until Peter arrives and goes in that they see the, the, the linen there in the tomb, that they, they realize what has happened. But, but he will live this long life in which he will not die as a martyr, but he will be given a ministry of, of testifying to the truth of what Jesus has said. We see that right here in the, the testimony of the Gospel of John the fourth of these accounts of the life of Jesus written for us? Yes, Peter has, does a little bit of writing. There's a little bit of, of his message to the church here in our New Testament. But John will write letters to the church, and then John will be given the ministry of writing down the, the revelation of the glory of Jesus at his return, the last book in the Bible. And so, the ministry of Peter is important to proclaim the gospel message and be willing to die for the sake of its truth. The ministry of John is important to write down and testify, to proclaim the truth of the message, and to live a life of faithful obedience to God. But Jesus is caring for each of them individually and personally. Notice even how, how John describes himself. We actually never hear his name in this gospel. He describes himself, look, look at verse 20, when, when Peter turned and saw the disciple, I am is that I have been loved by Jesus. That's, that's the truth you need to know about me, that I'm the one who was loved by Jesus. But then he gives us this parenthetical detail in verse 20 that, that takes us back to chapter 13, just to the, the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. He, he says that this was the disciple who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had asked him, Lord, who is going to betray you? And so this detail, it seems rather insignificant here. It's, it's connecting us back to chapter 13. It's, it's showing that John is connected with Peter. That Peter, the one who proclaims the gospel message, the testimony that John adds here is added to the testimony of Peter. But it also shows us the intimacy of the relationship that John has with Jesus. It shows us Jesus' care for his disciples. Because if you were to flip with me to John with Jesus around the table, one of the twelve is going to betray Jesus. And Peter, well, Peter wants to know, who is it? So he gets John's attention and asks John to ask Jesus. And so we see the connection, the intimacy of the relationship. And remember, there are two of the three, Peter, James, and John, who are with Jesus most of the time. The other Gospels make clear they're the ones who see the, the glory of heaven opened up at the transfiguration. But we also see Jesus' care for John. We, we read in John 13, 23, one of the disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask Jesus which one he means. Ask Jesus who's going to betray him. And so leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And then here in John 21, John reminds us, give me a little bit of space. Like, keep your distance. And maybe even the last two years have, have asked, you've asked people kind of 
keep even further distance from me. But, but you know that's, that's not always the case. There are times, there are moments when you want someone near you, close to you, someone that loves you and cares for you, who can come and, and wrap their arms around you and, and, and assure you of their love. Well, John is that close to Jesus. When we sing leaning on the everlasting arms, we sing it metaphorically. John is thinking, no, no, I was leaning, like right against Jesus. Like at the meal, literally, I was leaning against him. That's how close we are. That's how tight we are. And so when John gives us that detail, when he repeats it for us in John 21, he's reminding us of the intimacy that Jesus has for his disciples. So the question that Jesus asks, if I want him to remain alive, isn't dismissive of Peter's concerns. It's forcing Peter to turn. You must follow me. Because there's a danger here in the comparison game of, of always wondering, well, yeah, but what about that person? Of always wanting what somebody else has. Because comparison then becomes a thief of joy. You never actually enjoy the thing that you have been given. You never enjoy the place in life that Jesus has, has placed you. You're always comparing it to others. And so it, this, this comparison fosters frustration for you of always wanting something different, something better, some, some situation in life that someone else has, the, that promotion, that job, that relationship. You're always saying, if, if only I had what she has, if only I had what he has, if only I had the house that they live in, if only I had this. But what is Jesus doing? He's turning Peter's attention. He's turning our attention as readers of this gospel back to him. If I want him to remain alive until I return, in the ministry that I've given to John, I'm asking you to follow me. And once you see the, the glory and the goodness and the greatness, the compassionate care of the one who, who asks us that question, the one who calls us to follow him, then we begin to understand, well, well, if that's true, if Jesus is the one who loved me enough to restore me to ministry, well, then of course I could follow him. If Jesus is willing, after I denied him three times, to welcome me back as a minister of the gospel, as a shepherd of the sheep, then of course I would follow him. Jesus gave his life for me. I'm willing to give my life for him. See, our focus should be on Jesus, his love for us, his calling for us, his plan for where he has placed us, not primarily worried about what is he doing in his life or her life, but what is God doing in my life as a theological excuse. All right, here's what I mean. Sometimes we ask questions, if, if, and maybe this is true for you, if you don't believe in Jesus yet as the Savior, you ask these kinds of questions. Well, what about those people who have never heard the gospel before? Or what about, what about those people who follow that religious system? What about them? Now, these can be important theological questions. But what I'm, what I'm pushing against is the, the danger of using the question, using the comparison to avoid ever personally answering the question. Of saying, until I know what God's going to do for her, until I know what God's going to do for that tribe, until I know what God is going to do for the people who live on that island, then I won't deal with what God has done for me. Now we must admit that our hearts break for those who haven't heard a full explanation of the gospel. If you're a follower of Christ, but we also understand that each person, because each of us has been made by God, 
Each of us lives in the world that God has made. The scriptures tell us that we are without excuse, that even those who have not heard the name of Jesus understand who God is, understand his power in the fabric of who they are, in the universe in which they live. And so each one of us is without excuse because God has revealed himself to us. And so as Christians, we declare that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And yes, that repudiates other religious systems. But not to the exclusion of others. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Now these are big theological questions. But what I don't want you to do is use the question as an excuse to never then ask the personal question. Don't say, well, what about them? So that you never have to say, well, what about me? How will I... You have heard the truth about who Jesus is. And so you cannot wait to answer the question personally until you answer every other question because Jesus today is calling you, follow me. Now the passage shows us the the compassion and care of Jesus, his love for his disciples, but it also shows us Jesus' greatness, his glory and power. Look at the, again at the, the question that Jesus asked in verse 22. And remember, this is conditional. He's, he's not saying John will live until the return of Jesus. But he, but he says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, that question could have been asked in many different ways. It could have been asked, what does it matter what I have called him to? What does that matter for you? What what if, what if I have called John to this ministry? What does that matter to you? But Jesus him to remain alive until I return. What is that to you? See, the question is conditional. If I want him to remain alive, the promise that Jesus will return is unconditional. He didn't need to ask the question this way, but, but John records it so that we, we are, we're given here at the end of the gospel this reminder that while the gospel account ends here, The historical account of what Jesus is doing in his church does not end on this page. Jesus has promised, I will return. And that's filled with great hope for us. The of us who live after the time of the death of the apostles. Those who wait for Jesus to return. This is good news for us that all that has gone wrong will be made right. That all of the pain and the sorrow, all of the the hurt that we drag through life with us, it will be dealt with by Jesus. Those of us that have, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Because Jesus has made the promise, I will return. Even the question to Peter forces Peter to, to focus on the greatness and glory of Jesus. If I want him to remain. What's that to you? Of course I can come back during the lifetime of John. Of course I could preserve John for for centuries. Of course I have that kind of sovereign and divine power. But I am coming back to deal with all that has gone wrong in the world. Jesus' greatness on display for us here in the Gospel of John. And that's where, where John ends this Gospel account. Look at verse 25. He gives us this hypothetical, this image of a, of a library so big that it fills the whole world. But he says that wouldn't be enough to contain the glory of Jesus. Look at verse 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Snippets. He's given us seven signs of glory, seven miraculous signs to point us to the greatness of Jesus. 
culminated by then that final sign in which God raised Jesus from the dead. But John says, I, I, I only gave you a glimpse. I mean, if I tried to write down everything that Jesus said, it, it would be voluminous, but page after page. And then if I tried to explain it to you, if I tried to give you the theological understanding, because that, that's what John is doing in his gospel. He doesn't tell us this happened and then this happened. I mean, some of the other gospels read that way, and then this, and then immediately this, and then this. John actually stops and says, now let me explain it to you. Let me explain to you the question that Nicodemus asked. Let me explain to you the truth of, of Jesus telling us you must be born again. Let me, let me tell you not only that I saw water turned into wine, but what it means. It means Jesus is the great bridegroom with all power and authority. He's, he's giving us theological explanation. He's saying, if I tried to explain it all to you, if we gathered everyone who could write this down, even, even a library that would really appreciate the ability to, to access articles and, and journals online, to have a librarian send me, send me pictures and digital copies of, of things that I need for my research. But, but as, I, as I researched, being in an actual library, being able to pull a book off a shelf, being able to, to take a box of documents down and go through them one by one is, is meaningful. And, and Leah, I convinced, I invited each of my kids to come with me and do research in a library. Well, Leah was the only one that I was, was able to convince. And I, and I bribed her because I, I said, we'll do, we'll do cheesesteaks in South Philly. Just come and spend the morning with me. And you can, you can bring your, your, your device and you can put on headphones and you can be on the Wi-Fi. But, but come, come with me to the Presbyterian Historical Archives. And as I was going through the research on my, on my preacher, Going through, I mean, even the, the insignificant documents were exciting to me. Uh, look at this receipt. Look how cheap books were to buy back then, but look how much money he spent on books. I mean, everything, everything contained something of it. That's, like, that's not written down anywhere. Donald Gray Barnhouse got fired in his early 20s from being a missionary by the Belgian Gospel Mission. Like, he got fired as a missionary. Now, I, I spent the next nine months trying to figure out why he got fired. It turned out to not be really all that exciting of a story. But, but, but every, every page that I pulled out had some, some new detail, some new excitement. Now, Barnhouse was the kind of preacher that, that the first time you saw him or heard him preach, you knew he was a flawed man. Imagine now every document, every detail you pull up shows you the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of Jesus. Look, look at what's written here. He has loved me from before the foundation of the world. Wait, wait, look at, look at what's written on this page. He's, he's the one who, who made the universe. Look, look at the details given to us here. He has promised he is coming in. Every detail, beautiful Jesus is. And so when Jesus says to, to Peter, you must follow me, that's not merely advice. It's a command. You must follow me. But it's also the only reasonable explanation. The only reasonable response would be to actually follow Jesus. When you, when you say, he's the son of God who gave his life for me, of course I will follow him. And that's what John is, is saying. That's why he wrote this down for us. Look at verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies these, to these things and who wrote them down. He wants us to see the greatness and the glory of Jesus. He says, I, I was there and I witnessed. I can authenticate the facts, but I can also explain to you why it matters. That you see the glory and the power of Jesus. And then the end of verse 24, he switches from, from speaking in the singular about the disciple to speaking in the plural, 
we know. Now, it, it might be that he's, he's writing in the context of a church community and he's saying that, that we collectively as the church can testify to the truth of, of what's been written down. But it might also be that, that well, John has no trouble switching between the singular and the plural because he knows he's adding his testimony to the testimony that's already been heard. He, he self-consciously knows he's writing the fourth gospel. That we're, we're meant to, to understand all that Jesus has already said and done in those other gospel messages. He's intentionally connected himself to Peter and the testimony of Peter, to the testimony of the other apostles. And so he's saying, it's not just, it's not just that I testify to this, we testify to the truth of this. I mean, he can just slip between the singular and the plural such that in, in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he does the same thing. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And this truth. Because my fellow disciples who are willing to go to their graves with this gospel message, who are willing to be, be nailed to a cross for the sake of this truth, they testify along with me. We were there. We saw it. God has revealed to us the truth of who he is. And so you and I are meant to respond to the care of Jesus, to understand that he loves us intimately, each one of us. We are meant to respond to the greatness and glory of Jesus. This is where John's gospel has been leading us. At the beginning of the gospel of John, he, he tells us that Jesus has arrived, that Jesus appeared to us, that Jesus took on flesh. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The gospel of John unfurls the glory of Jesus. So that we see it in the miracles of Jesus. That we see it in the resurrection of Jesus. That even in the doubt of Thomas, God. See, that's the response that should be on our lips. When Jesus says, you must follow me. Anywhere. Anywhere you would lead me, Jesus, I will go. For I know your goodness. I know your love. You gave your life for me. You are my Lord and my God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the good news of Jesus, who is our Savior. Lord, for those of us that have put our trust in Jesus, Give us a hope and a confidence in the truth of what has been revealed to us. Give us a boldness in, in making the gospel known in the places where you have sent us. Lord, for those that listen today to your word, whether joining us via live stream or, or sitting here in the sanctuary, if they have not yet put their trust in Christ, give them and to believe in Jesus. For he is the king who has been raised from the dead. He is the one with all glory and authority, the one whose, whose glories would fill all the volumes of the earth. And so, Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus our Savior, Jesus our King.